All right, so in Acts chapter 19, last week Jim punched a little ways into Acts chapter 19, the first eight verses. And what we've talked about, you know, several times over this study through Acts, and you're going to get sick of me bringing it back up over and over again, but it's that important, is that this is a transitional book, right? Acts is this transition from uh, the ministry of Jesus and the gospel, the gospel accounts, into the church age. And because of that, there are some very unique things that happen in the book of Acts that are not necessarily prescriptive for us today, but certainly they are uh, descriptive and we can learn a lot from them. All scripture is God-breathed and useful, and so we just want to be careful how we use the book of Acts. And as Jim brought us into chapter 19, there were some reminders of the transitional character of this book of the Bible right in these first seven verses of chapter 19. For example, we meet Apollos. And Apollos, you'll remember, was this godly man, a mighty orator, but he was missing some pieces of the puzzle, right? He was preaching John's gospel, the the baptism of repentance. And what was he missing? So he comes in and they hear this godly man preaching the word, but he's missing some significant things. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. He certainly knew about Jesus. John knew about Jesus, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he was missing some pretty important, we would say pretty crucial uh, points of his theology. But he was declaring what was uh, true at the time. And then here come Priscilla and Aquila. They come and they catch him up to speed. And then we know that he goes on to have a significant ministry. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will write, you know, some of you follow Apollo, some of you Paul. Like, they're bragging about following Apollo. So clearly, he had a significant ministry even after Priscilla and Aquila. But we just see, again, this transition time. It's like Apollos was standing on the fence between these two eras, right? And he's declaring what came before, but because news doesn't spread via email back then, news had not come to him yet of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. And so he's preaching what he knows, but things haven't yet come uh, all the way into what we would consider the church age into what we read in Ephesians or Colossians kind of thing. Okay, so there's this interesting, we're just reminded that this is a very unique time in the history of the church that someone could be alive after the resurrection of Christ that doesn't yet know about the resurrection of Christ. Just, uh, again, never again and never before have we had that time. There's also some other interesting things in this text when we see that uh, in verse 6, when Paul had laid his hands upon them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Also in verse 2, he's asking them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Again, we're just alerted to the fact that this is a unique time in the history of the church, right? Because now we understand through the rest of the New Testament that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells you, seals you, you're made new, you're given a new heart. That happens instantaneously. But here we read this, so they believed in the message, and Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they no, no, we didn't. That, that to us, we're like, how is that possible? It's because of the unique time in which Acts is recording. Now, let's think back through the text that we've covered so far in Acts. There's been other significant moments, morning, in Acts, where there's been a big conversion moment recorded by Luke, where people come to faith and there's miraculous signs. You think of Acts 2. What happens in Acts 2? Acts 2 is pretty significant. Pentecost, right? So Peter and the apostles, they stand up, the Holy Spirit comes, they declare to the Jews in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit descends, they are baptized. Significant moment. Um, Acts 8, what happens in Acts chapter 8? Sorry? Uh, Stephen dies a little before that. Yep, but you're on the right track. Right after Stephen comes another deacon. Philip. And he, to Samaria, right? So he goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. This guy who's not full-fledged Jew, and they're outside Jerusalem, but he comes to faith, and then Philip disappears. So these miraculous workings. Um, Fast forward to Acts chapter 10. What happens in Acts chapter 10? Another significant moment. Sorry? Cornelius, right? So now we've got, now even further outside Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit comes upon these Gentiles, but he's, a, he's not a proselyte, but he's sympathetic to Yahweh. We know he's a righteous man, he's a, he's a godly man, right? But we see in these conversion stories that Luke is recording in Acts, then moving further and further away of Jerusalem Jew. We've got in Acts 2, then the eunuch, and then Cornelius, and now we're in Acts chapter 19, where he lays hands and the Holy Spirit comes, and now we're outside the walls of Jerusalem. And we remember from Acts chapter 8, that was the whole goal. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, 
Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But we see that as this movement and as the work of the Holy Spirit and salvation comes to the area, God is sending forth the apostles to validate what's happening. Right? They go forth, they lay hands uh, to validate that this is the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's what is waiting for here. That's why there's the delay. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? We didn't. We didn't do that. So here comes one of the apostles, lays hands, and says, this was legitimate. We can almost say, you know, uh, the apostles were kind of the midwives of the church. They're there for this incredible birth moment in this time. But, you know, after the birth is done, you don't need the midwife anymore, right? The, the church kind of goes on life goes on, but this is the birth time, and there are things that happen during the birth time that don't happen when they're 6 or 7 or 18, hopefully, right? This is very unique. So that's kind of the apostles are bringing the church into the world, and there's some really fascinating things that have happened here, okay? So hopefully you've, you've, you've learned as we've gone through Acts now, and we're significant ways through, you're getting sick of me saying this is descriptive, not prescriptive, and yet it shapes us. We, we want to understand what was happening and learn from the movements that God's doing. Okay, so we're just reminded at the beginning in, verse nine, or in chapter 19 that this is a transitional, transitional book. Fascinating, but very unique. Yes? So the question is, for those you can't hear, in chapter 18, Paul shakes off his garments when he's rejected, right? And is this a, a lesson for us, a principle that we can adopt today? You know, again, we would want to corroborate it with other scripture. For example, you know, Jesus saying, don't cast pearls before swine. Be careful how we evangelize kind of thing. Again, the shaking the dust off is a very Jewish thing. You know, the Jews rejected the, the teacher, and so they would say, okay, we reject you back kind of thing. But I think we can take lessons from that and say, should we be cautious with how we evangelize and share the gospel with our friends? I would not say not evangelizing, but you know how sometimes you might present to your friends. We're still going to be loved in them and family, but at some point we have to step back and say, you know what, you are like abusive. There's nothing, yeah, sometimes there's nothing that we can do. For sure. For I think that and nothing we can do, humanly speaking. Right. And sometimes the best thing, and I'm sure you've all experienced this, You've evangelized or you've been around someone that gets increasingly hardened, and we'll see hardness of heart today in our text, that it almost seems, and the Spirit is prompting me, this is becoming counterproductive. My presence here is actually um, almost prompting an increased hardness of heart. I'm going to pull back and just pray like crazy and pray that the Lord brings someone else into their life that they'll respond better to. You know, sometimes we're just the sowers of the seed. Someone else comes along to water or to harvest and praise the Lord for whatever role we get to play. But it takes some sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Should I continue to, to fight this fight? Or is there a time to kind of pull back and pray that the Lord brings someone else in because I'm causing more damage here? Maybe I have history with the person and they just can't get over that. I mean, that's happened uh, to me before as well. That They're just not hearing me anymore because of a hardness there. Yeah. In Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time to search and a time to give up. Mm-hmm. A time to search and a time to give up searching. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we need the wisdom to know a person and when to just commit them to the Lord's care. Yeah. And not feel guilty about it. Yep, that's right. I know with uh, Paul in that situation, um, they were also going a step further than even just persecuting Christianity, but it was like they were maligning the name of Christ. Yep. And like that's like a good like for like our that's a pearl before swine is like when they're just trampling over like mm-hmm. Jesus' name and his character. Yep. Like we can take yeah. 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 We will see. There is a moment coming up here where Paul is pretty persistent in Ephesus. Like he's there three months and then two years, plodding along, reasoning with them. That's pretty. That's some stick-to-itiveness, I would say. But then when they malign the way, they start getting really hardened. And I don't know if it's the hardness we'll see in a moment, or when they start attacking the way specifically, or combination. He says, "You know what?" That's enough. And we need to be very prayerful on where that line is. Uh, and I think it's, it's situation to situation. That's why I praise the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit that can kind of guide us and soften us. And we need to uh, be sensitive to him in that way. Any other comments as we approach this new text, the transitional nature, what we're getting into here?
All right. Okay, so verse 8 of chapter 19. And this is what Bobby just brought up and what I was just uh, speaking of a second ago. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue. Notice again, he's going to the Jew first. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Okay? So there is something to say. He is reasoning and persuading them. He is arguing with them, trying to convince them of what he's saying is true. And we know going into the synagogue, what is he using? We've seen him do it already. What is he using to reason with them and persuade them? The Old Testament, right? The Hebrew Bible. He would go to the scriptures. Now that's unique because they had the same source of knowledge. He can appeal to that, right? If you're talking to a Christian about, um, let's say, Sabbath keeping, right? We're talking about Sabbath keeping. Let's say Judy and I are arguing. She thinks we need to keep the Sabbath. I don't think we need to. Because we're both believers, we both are appealing to the same authority. We can open the word together, right? And say, well, let's see what God says. But if I'm talking to a non-believer about something, we don't have the same basis to appeal to, right? And so we need to be very cautious. Here he's talking to Jews in the synagogue, and he's reasoning, trying to persuade them, uh, and he's going to the Hebrew scriptures, going to Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, uh, Zechariah 12, he's going to Genesis 3, he's going to Moses, talking about a prophet is coming like me. There's all sorts of places in the Old Testament he's going to 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 show them about Jesus, okay? And so he's appealing to that same source of authority. Now, in our lives today, when we go into our workplaces and our classrooms and, and our lives, what is the source? How can we evangelize people who don't hold the same source of authority as we do? Because if you say, well, no, you don't understand, John 3.16, what are they going to say? I could not care less. What John, I don't know what a John 3.16 is. You know, they, they don't, that does not, now, caveat, disclaimer, the word of God is living and active. So it is powerful, and it can do its work. But in reasoning, like he's doing here, what does it say? He is speaking about reasoning and persuading them. Uh, what, what do we do when we're talking to an unbeliever who does not hold the word of God to be anything other than a piece of old literature? How can we appeal to them at a level that is understandable? Creation. Creation. Good. Psalm 19, Romans 1, talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. Good. Excellent. They can't argue with that, can they? They can dismiss it, but they can't really argue with that. What else? Any other ideas? So two pretty good ones. Is it consistent? Excellent. With what you're saying? History. Good. Good. Yeah, it's, it's very, we need to be shrewd. You know, we always do in all generations of the church, but we need to be shrewd in talking with people, trying to find those points of contact like creation, like our testimony, like history, um, where we can point them and get them on an equal footing. We're talking, talking about authority and God's revelation. You know, it, it's very, um, you'll see people who are skilled in evangelism, they do this so well. Right? They have a way of, of pulling things down to a, an even playing field. Like, how did this all get here? You, know, you start talking about general revelation to get them to special revelation, um, all those kinds of things. Here, Paul doesn't have to do that. He will, and he does later on, but here he's appealing to Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, right? and just saying, let's go back and see what our God says. And he goes back and reasons and persuades them. Now, I do want to say there are also movements of Scripture, uh, movements in Christianity and maybe you've come across or read books by people who think this way, who are very, um, we'll call them deterministic in their thinking. That God decides who's going to be saved, and he makes it happen. And so people who think like this understand that in the salvation, when someone comes to faith, regeneration, the new birth, becoming alive in Christ, getting a new heart, that happens before faith. Okay, so that's what, how they understand. So God saw that Jim was going to be saved. He chose Jim to be saved. And at the moment God decided that that would happen, he regenerated Jim so that Jim woke up and said, now I believe in Jesus. Okay, so that regeneration precedes faith. And, and in that case, when you're evangelizing, you're asking the Lord to open people's eyes. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing they can even do. In fact, the act of faith is a work, they would say. 
So, and we know that salvation is by grace through faith without works. So it can't be that just trusting Christ, that's a work. So God has to give you the power to do that work. Now, to me, that seems a little odd, especially considering verses like this. Paul's in the synagogue reasoning and persuading them, trying to get them to understand what the scriptures say about Messiah. Why would you argue? Why would you persuade? Why would you reason with someone if what needs to happen is them to be woken up first by God? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you bother? And then it says later on that their hearts were becoming hardened. Well, if you can't see it anyway without God opening your eyes, then how do you become more hard from blind? How do you become more blind than blind? How do you become more dead than dead? Right? So we would just say, no, 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 no. Faith itself is not a work. We know from Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you are saved through faith. This not of itself, this uh, gift of God, meaning all of salvation is a gift of God. God comes after us. He acts first. He sent his prophets. He sent his Holy Spirit. He sends his apostles. He sends his church. He sends his word. And that itself is powerful. And our response is to trust Christ. That is our response. It's just to lean on him and say, I need you. And Paul is trying to get them to that point. Right? He's using the word of God to get them to a point where they trust Christ. Okay? That might be an unnecessary rabbit trail, but that was prompted, uh, as I was reading it this morning, I was thinking, I just wanted to say something about the order of salvation, we call it. We believe regeneration, new birth, John 3, becoming new, the Holy Spirit coming in, sealing us, that happens after faith. We trust Christ, we are regenerated, not the other way around. And you may not realize it, but the other way around is very common right now, to understand that God regenerates so that we can have faith. And again, this may seem unnecessary and, and just a, a bizarre rabbit trail, but I, I wanted to point it out. Any questions on that? Maybe you've heard that before in the past? Don't you think that the Jewish people here are kind of waiting for the Messiah to come? David did come, but they didn't, they didn't expect him to come the way he did, so therefore that's why they're trying to persuade us. Mm-hmm. Yes. And even I'm going to pay you for that segue, Stephen, later on. Perfect segue. Excellent. So notice what he's reasoning and persuading them about. The kingdom of God. Now, we've talked about this a lot in Acts as well. Let's flesh flesh this out. What is he talking about? The kingdom of God. What are they expecting? What is he trying to convince them of? Go ahead, Bobby. What else? What do you know about the kingdom of God? We're supposed to be the extension of David's throne. Yes. Yeah. Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 7. It's a promise from God to David that someone will always be on the throne of David. And we know that the throne of David is an actual chair in an actual place, in an actual city in Jerusalem. Okay, so they're expecting a king to sit on that throne and rule over Israel, like David did, like Solomon kind of did before he blew it, like Saul kind of did before he was a train wreck. Right? But, but David, right? he was supposed to be, so someone is going to eternally reign over this everlasting kingdom. And so they're waiting. We want this Messiah to come, this king of kings, to sit on this throne. And as you read the Old Testament, there is peace, like shalom comes when the king sits upon the throne. Evil is done away with. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Everything is, it's Eden again. So they're waiting for this Messiah. Now, they understood, as we've talked about in our Matthew series as well, king and kingdom go together. When the king comes, so comes the kingdom. And so Paul is here saying, the Messiah came. And they're saying, okay, where's the kingdom then? Like, they're living in, and we'll see in a moment here, they're living in a place that's full of um, the occult. They're living in a place where demon possession is everywhere, and that was one of the signs that demons would be cast out when the king came. They're looking around and saying, okay, if he was the king, tell me. How, there is no kingdom here right now. And so they're confused, like Stephen was saying. 
There's a disconnect here. He could not be the king because there's no kingdom. And so Paul's explaining to them, now you need to understand that the king was rejected. He died, was buried, resurrected. And he said the kingdom is still yet future. There's coming a time when he will return and set up his earthly kingdom. But what needs to happen before then? You missed it, for sure. What needs to happen? So even right now, because the kingdom, I mean, I looked outside this morning. I don't think this is the kingdom. As I read the kingdom in the scriptures, um, yeah, it's, it's not what I find described, right? We're still waiting for this coming kingdom. This, when Jesus will sit on that throne and everything will be made right. A democracy is not in the future of this world. It is a perfect monarchy. That's what we're waiting for, right? That's what we're longing for. That's what we pray for. Come, Lord Jesus, come. This is the cry of your people. But what needs to happen, according to the Old Testament? Maybe I'm digging a little bit here, but what is that one thing that, that the prophets constantly say needs to happen before, before the kingdom comes? Or a mark that the kingdom is going to come? Yes? They need to repent as a nation, right? John the Baptist came, Jesus came, saying, repent for the kingdom is hand. You repent, here it comes. And that's still the criteria today. In fact, if we go back, and I know we're going to going back in time now, but Acts chapter 3, if you turn back there for a moment, you'll remember Acts chapter 3 was outside the temple when, when Peter and John healed that man that was lame. And then it draws a crowd, right? People are like, oh man, I, we know that guy. He sat there forever. Goodness, how is he walking? And it draws this crowd. And Peter sees the opportunity as he always does. He's a crowd gathering. He says, I'm going to preach a sermon. He twists the knife. Y'all killed your Messiah. That's what he says to them. And then notice in verse... Um, yeah, verse, verse 19, verse 18, verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, and he's te- who's he talking to here? He's in the temple, so he's clearly talking to Jews, right? Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed to you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So you go back to uh, Zechariah 12. Uh, You go back to, um, uh, well, certainly in Romans 11, it talks about this need for repentance for the kingdom to come, a national repentance that the kingdom will come. There's a time of tribulation that will bring about this national repentance, Right? And that will bring the kingdom to come. Now, let's put some pieces together here. Have you heard of the doctrine or the teaching of imminency in Scripture? The doctrine of imminency? What, is, what does it mean if something's imminent? Any moment, right? And would you say that we are taught in Scripture the doctrine of imminency, to wait for the imminent return of Christ? Any moment, right? Be prepared. Be prepared. Now, let's put some pieces together. If, if we know, though, that the kingdom will come when Israel repents as a nation, when their leadership repents and turns back to Yahweh. That doesn't seem so imminent. Because we can see, well, they don't seem to be any, they don't seem to be very close to repentance right now, so clearly today is not the day. Right? Clear, probably not this week either, if I read the news properly. I don't know if national repentance is coming. So how do we square that circle? So there's a doctrine of imminency. Any moment, the Lord can come back. But Israel has to repent. Any guesses? The rapture of the church. And what follows the rapture of the church? The tribulation. Okay. So this is why we teach here a pre-tribulational rapture. Those are big words. But we teach that Christ is going to catch up his church. And then there's going to come a time of tribulation, which the Bible talks about. This, this intense time of testing. In fact... I think we just learned about that last week, right? Revelation chapter 3. This time of intense tribulation is coming, which when the Holy Spirit is taken out with the believers, right? The the indwelling spirit is taken out. The Jews who are left are going to be tried. And at the end of this tribulation, they are going to come to repentance. So that's, and then the king will come at the end of the tribulation. He will come. So that's how we as believers, we believe in imminence. Any moment, the Lord can come back for his church. Any moment, perhaps today, we say that with all eagerness. Please, Lord, come and take us. This world is, just come, Lord, please come. Right? But at the same time, we know that before the kingdom can come, there has to be a time of national repentance. And that will come through this tribulation. The Lord will uh, bring them to himself. 
That's a lot, and we're a long way from Acts. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes, very good. The tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. Yeah. Excellent. So, okay, can I go on a little rabbit trail? Please. Okay. So, I've already been down a few. <laughs> Sorry. I just wanted, like, this is the most visual point in this whole Acts for me, mm-hmm. and I keep going back to it. Uh, I'll just quickly, yep. quickly read a little bit. Um, so it's the stoning of Stephen. Mm. Yeah, that's a huge discussion called a contingency. So God's contingency plan. So we're okay. there's a lot of we're into theory now. Okay, so let's oh. we're into speculation here. Yeah. So it's the same thing when Christ came in Matthew chapter four, five, six, seven, and said, "Repent," and Israel, if they had said, "Let's do it," yeah. well, what happened to the cross then? Well, we know the cross had to take place, and there's a lot of now we're into speculation about how these things can God say a legitimate offer of the kingdom, knowing, because he's all-knowing, that they will reject it. And can both those things be true? We'd have to say yes. He does it to believers. right? We go and we do a legitimate offer of the gospel to someone. Does God know if they'll accept or reject? Of course he does, right? Um, Does he control whether they accept or reject? We'd say no. It doesn't thwart the offer. It doesn't make the offer any less legitimate. So that's how we understand that. Now when we come into Acts, and again, transition, so I may change my mind next week on this one, okay? Where, where is that moment when the offer of the kingdom would become any moment? When is, the, when is the straw that breaks the camel's back for the nation of Israel? I, I go back and forth. Sometimes I think that we're coming up to it in Matthew, Matthew 13, when they attribute um, the power to, uh, the, to Beelzebub, right? I think that that is a major, because you see in Matthew, all of a sudden he turns and starts preparing his disciples for his passion. After that, he doesn't go to, to the nation anymore. Sometimes I think that there's an Acts chapter 2. I, I don't really know where that moment is. And I don't know in our text today when, when he's saying, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, if he's saying repent and it'll come now, or if he's saying you missed it, but you can still be saved and know that the kingdom is yet future. I'm not sure if he's just filling in blanks for them. We're not given that information. So I'm extremely unhelpful on that point at this moment. All that to say. <laughs> for sure. And again, much has been made about Jesus standing when Stephen sees him. Much has been made of that because we know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So what does it mean that he stood up? Is it because he's a martyr and he's standing to welcome this martyr home? Um, Is it because he's preparing to come back? Again, a lot of that is theological speculation. Um, It's unique, that's for sure. Yeah, I don't think there's anywhere else no, he's seated because the work is done. The high priest never sat down. There's no furniture to sit down in the tabernacle, right? Which was the presence of God. And the fact that he sat down, like in the book of Hebrews, the right hand of God means it is finished. It's done. And that just gives me chills. The fact that he's standing to welcome a saint home, to me, again, could change my mind next week, I think it's just a picture of intimacy. Like, my saint has laid down his life in a very Christological way. Father, forgive them, right? Who else said that? Father, forgive them, right? And I just think it's such a beautiful martyrdom, and the Lord welcomes him home. Yeah. yeah. Bobby? I'm curious about that, because um, could it be he, he sat from like, the work of salvation for us, but then we also have a daily like, prayer life where he intercedes for yeah. us as our high priest. Yeah. So does he like, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again, I want to be careful. We're using anthropomorphic or, or human language to describe God. He is embodied. Christ is embodied forevermore. Is that to mean, like, when it says he sits down, does that mean, I think it means symbolic, he's done his work. He's done as a high priest. Does that mean that for all eternity, until he comes again, he's not allowed to get up off his bum next to, I don't think literally that's what we're talking about here. I think it's symbolically he's done his, his role. And you're right, he intercedes for us moment by moment as our great high priest. My conviction is that right now, Jesus is not reigning as king. He is the Davidic king. He is anointed. He, like David, was anointed before he took the throne. Jesus is the king anointed to come, but until he sits on that throne, right now, he's, his present session, we would call it, is as high priest. He served as prophet, high priest, and he is coming as king. But right now, I do not hold that he is serving as king right now. Um, God the Father is obviously king of the world. You know, so we're talking about two different types of kingdom there. But as far as the Davidic throne, that is yet future and contingent upon Israel's repentance. Um, but, so let me ask you Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to speculate as to what Jesus is doing at this moment right now. Um, but I think that Stephen saw him standing, just what the text says. Now, what that means that he stood up, I think it's again. I take it as that he's welcoming Stephen into the presence of the Lord. Um, could it mean more than that? Probably. Smarter people than I probably know what that means. But uh, I don't know, Jim, if you have anything to add about the standing next to the to welcome Stephen in. If I'm missing something. And, I, and we all stood up when Jim entered the room today. Yeah, we all stood up. Stephen? Well, you know, we're talking now about the Davidic throne and so on. Even the Jewish people today are talking about the Davidic throne. Where is it? Where is it today? Because no one knows where the Davidic throne is. Just like they said, they don't know where the ark is. They don't know where the... So where is the Davidic throne today? Right now, it literally is not in Jerusalem, right? But there is coming a day when it will be again, and we are waiting for that. Like, there is no... Yes, yes. When Jerusalem comes out of heaven, like a bride prepared for a groom. But it will be literal. It will be physical. Uh, That is what they anticipated. That's what we anticipate. And it will be a great day. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Set up this kingdom and repair this disaster that we've made of your creation. Like, we have just done what sinners do, and only... A perfect monarch can rectify the situation for all eternity. That's what we long for. Standing, uh, for Marcus, if you go to Islam and you read um, what they have to say about a person who's been martyred or a person who has died in killing other people, they stand in paradise welcoming them, just mm-hmm. like with a king or a queen mm-hmm. who would stand. And this is to say, mm-hmm. well done, yeah. you've done a great job. Yeah, any way you, you slice it. What would that have been like for Stephen to look up and see the Son of Man in glory standing? You know, it's good news, no matter how you slice it. Whatever that means, I mean, obviously that was comfort- comforting, and he fell asleep immediately after that. Um, Bobby? Special reward? Could be. No. <laughs> I think it's amazing with Stephen that being pummeled by rocks, and we're not talking about little stones, and yet he could say in a strong voice, Father, forgive them. Mm-hmm. They don't want to forgive them. Mm-hmm. That to me is a miracle in itself. Mm-hmm. So God, yeah, he saw Jesus, yeah. and he was empowered. Mm-hmm. As much as we talk about Acts being descriptive, not prescriptive, there are more chill-inducing moments for me in Acts than most other books of the Bible like that. That is, that he could be being killed for the sake of Jesus, see Christ, and declare, and ask the Lord to forgive them. Like it's just, 
as much as I pray that that doesn't happen to me, you know, I pray that I have the courage that resembles and the grace that resembles something like Stephen has. That would be the Holy Spirit speaking through Stephen's voice. Yeah. So we've been one verse so far. That's good. Time is it. I'm making, I'm making good progress here. Okay, so three months in the synagogue, reasoning with the, pleading with these Jews on the basis of the Hebrew Bible, explaining to them the things of the kingdom of God. Verse 9, but when some were becoming hardened to disobedience, speaking evil of the way, so this could be either referred to Christians, Christians or Christ himself, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, they're speaking evil of the way before the people. And oftentimes we know that Christ doesn't distinguish between the two. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He... He connects with his people, right? He identifies with his people. So they're speaking evil of the way before the people. Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. We don't know a whole lot about Tyrannus, but this would be a school of thought that was in the city. And again, it's hard for us to understand, but a lot of times for leisure in those days, they would go and attend lectures. That's what they did for leisure. You'd see that on the Areopagus, right, in Athens, where they would go and they liked to... Uh, the newest ideas, they like to discuss those and kind of like um, an ancient TED talk. You know, they just went to like hear these new ideas and the school of Tyrannus was one of those places. But he's, the thing that prompts Paul to take his disciples and move from the synagogue to this more of a secular school to get a hearing there is that they become hardened and that they start to speak evil of the way. So for three months, he's contending with them. What does it mean to be hardened? I think we hear that word. Uh, these are obviously unbelievers. What, is, what does this look like, and do we experience it today as believers? Do we need to be cautious of it today? Closed-minded, oppositional. Yeah, good. To reject the gospel, to reject the gospel is the, the height of hardness, right? Sometimes, like, even in the face of, of evidence, you just be, be hardened against it. There's no way. I've already decided that's not true. Nothing you can say is going to penetrate my heart. You just can't. I've already decided. I've already made the call. You know, we have, I think even as Christians today, we need to be cautious of that. We have very forms. Of, I, can, I can have a hard heart to certain things that I don't like. My flesh doesn't like, right? Even about scriptures. You'll see that in churches, there are times disagreements about what we might call secondary or tertiary doctrines, right? Uh, that we're not talking about gospel proper, but there might be uh, disagreements over a secondary doctrine there where one side just hardens. They're not going to listen to the other side. Um, the always controversial uh, topic of, of women in ministry, right, and women in the home. At our church, we teach a complementary, a complementary view of, of women and men in that in the church, in the home, they are created equal, and God has given different roles to both. That is God's prerogative, and we teach that. Not, guess what? Not everyone likes that. <laughs> I don't know if that surprised you. Not everyone likes that teaching today, you know, and that can be offensive, now, there's a good in-house discussion to be had over the text one way or another, but we can be hardened to one side to not even listen to the other side anymore. Anything that they bring is just stupid, they're dumb, they're not thinking clearly, and that's just a hardness, right? And it's, it's obviously, the, the root sin is pride. It's pride there, uh, and, and gracelessness, really. Now, unbelievers can be hardened to the gospel, like Bertha's saying as well. They can be hardened to, uh, obviously, the, the truths that um, Paul is bringing here, but we need to be careful as Christians, too, that we are not that we never sacrifice our soft-heartedness. We want to cling to truth, but we want to be gracious, right? We want to uh, ask the Lord to keep our, our hearts soft so that we can be um, not contentious and not hard-hearted unnecessarily. And there's a big difference between hard-heartedness and conviction. <laughs> and Lord, help us know the difference between those two things. Yeah? I'm curious if that's what the, this proverb is, like, guard your heart above all else. Because I always thought of that as, like, guard your heart from people trying to hurt it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, like, from ourselves and <laughs> from the hardening of it. Yeah. Yeah, if you're not familiar and if you haven't already, we have a series going on right now on our podcast going through books of the Bible. One, I interview a scholar talking about Genesis, then one talking about Exodus. And in the Exodus one, uh, Dr. Dorian Coover-Cox, she talks about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and what that actually means. And how in ancient Egypt, 
a heavy heart is a sign of bad news in the afterlife. So they wanted a light heart. And so there's a hardening of the heart, meaning that he, God gives them over to a decision they've already made, right? And, and solidifies them. Jesus has a great explanation of that. Uh, check that out. It's on our website. All these books of the Bible going through one at a time. The insights are really helpful to understand that very controversial passage, right? People think, oh, that's so unfair. God hardens someone's heart. He doesn't have a chance. That's not what the text says at all. Uh, but God can give us over, Romans 1, give us over to the hardness of our heart, right? If we, if we set our hearts and our minds against the Lord, there's times when the Lord will say, have it your way. You know, I think it's C.S. Lewis that said there's only two people in life, people that say to God, your will be done, and people to whom God says, your will be done. And we want to be in the former camp. We want to be people who say, Lord, your will be done, not uh, the people that God says, your will be done, because that's never a good thing. He can give us over to the hardness of our heart if we set us against God. And here... You know, I just, as Christians, we need to guard ourselves. We live in a very polarized age. Social media, everyone's got an opinion about everything. You've got to be fired up about something or you're not living. And we just need to be very cautious as Christians. Be soft-hearted, be gracious, be convicted, but guard our hearts above all else. Guard our hearts, guard our minds, renew our minds with Scripture, be soft-hearted and gracious. Um, and especially in the body of Christ, we have got to be gracious with one another. Um, it's just very, very important. How will people know that we belong to the Lord? By how we love one another. That doesn't mean soft-pedaling doctrine or, or thing, but we are gracious with one another. So two verses, good. So he's reasoning. <laughs> crying out loud. <laughs> okay, so he's reasoning in this now more of a secular, but you notice Paul's not taking his foot off the pedal. He is, he is reasoning with people. He is doggedly after people to teach them about Christ. This took place for two years, verse 10, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Incredible accomplishment. You know, if, I think it's back in the notes, there's a map. And so you'll see, like, in Asia, there's a huge swath of land now that everyone has heard because of Paul's ministry for two years. He is just after it. And so that no one could say in that neck of the woods, in that era, I did not know about Jesus. No one could say that. You know, it doesn't say that they believed it, but no one could say that they, did not, they had not heard in that area. This is one man. That is, that is impressive. He is pumping out the word, no doubt empowered by the Holy Spirit. But that is, uh, he's an Iron Man. He's going, he's going hard. And to think that this is And you notice, too, that, and this is maybe a, a lesson for us today and, and those who go as missionaries, Paul doesn't shy away from the hard places, does he? Like, here we're going to see in, well, let's face it, we're going to see it next week. But what we'll see is that this is a place of extreme demon activity. This is a, a and they come and they start burning their magic books. The occult has a strong foothold in Ephesus. Paul goes right in there. Two and a half years, he's, he's going after it. He's trying to... Uh, and then we see, saw him at Mars Hill, Athens, these heady intellectuals talking about like, all these um, fancy ideas. Paul goes right in there. And then later on in 1 Corinthians, he talks about, I didn't come to you with slick speech or with some incredible new idea. I came with the simplicity and the stupidity of the cross and how that is offensive to the high-minded Greeks. He doesn't care. He just gets after it. He knows his message is good news. It is powerful. And he doesn't care what the opposition looks like. His task is not to um, convert people. It is, like it says in verse 10, to get the news out. You know, to get the news out and let the Lord do his work with his word. In fact, if we flip over, spoiler alert, in verse 20 of the same chapter, we come to one of those um, progress reports, we've called them, where Luke stops and just says, and here's what's going on. And you'll see in verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. What was prevailing in Gormundi? The word of the Lord. Not Paul, not, not the church, the word of the Lord. It is unstoppable. There's a famous quote, I think it was, the original was, I think it was Spurgeon. When people were, this famous preacher from hundred and so years ago, when people were saying, why don't you defend the Bible? You know, you just talk about, no, this is inerrant, and, and give us slick argumentation for why we can trust it. He says, no, no, you don't defend a lion. You let it out of its cage. He'll defend himself. His, his, he's just letting the word go, and it will do its work. And that's what we see here. He's like, the word of God just kept, nothing was going to stop this word. It just kept on going, kept on going. You know, 
Shame on any church that does not just preach the word. That is our power. If we're going to change Oakville, if we're going to win Canada, it is not going to be with slickness, good marketing, a social media campaign. Campaign is going to be just the word of God. Just the word, as, as much as people want to say, that's old-fashioned, that's archaic, you've got to be with the times. Say, are you crazy? The only thing that won Turkey, the only thing that won these people over was the word of God. It wasn't Peter, it wasn't Paul, it was the word of God going forth and doing its work. As a church, that is our only lifeline to doing ministry. Our only, as missionaries, as people in going out into the world, when we leave here, going to our workplace, whatever, the only thing we have that will change hearts is the Word of God. It is living and active, and we need to give people the Word of God. And that's why, you know, as a church, that's what you'll always hear from the pulpit here. That's what you'll always hear. Turn in your Bibles. Why? Because even in my life, the only thing that is going to shape me into the image of Christ is the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God working through it. Only thing. I cannot know... No small group, the people necessarily, no me you know, disciplining myself, none of that. It's the word of God doing its work. And that's what we see in this text. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing even in these dark places. I just love that picture. And I just find, maybe it's just me because of you know, my job, that's so um, freeing. That's so liberating. You know, okay, so God's going to do the work. He's given us the tool. Just be faithful in just proclaiming the word. Study the word, share the word, and just let it do its work. Like, I don't have to uh, be something I'm not. I'm not charismatic enough. I'm not all these things. I don't, I don't have the slick tongue, you know, like Moses. Don't send me. My tongue is heavy. I can't, I can't speak. No, no. What does he say? I'm going to tell you what to say. The word of God in Moses. You know? um, so we just need to be always coming back to it. I need to continually remind myself. In a day and age of slick marketing and all that kind of stuff, what is... It that God calls us to do. Word of God. It is living and active, and people will scoff at it like they did for Paul here. They harden their hearts against it. That is none of my business. I'm going to keep persuading, keep persuading, and give the word of God, because it will do its work. Um, it's not a, uh, a popular strategy, I would say, but it's the one God gave us. And so we dedicate ourselves to doing God's work God's way. Uh, that's the only way it gets done properly. And the proof is when a four-year-old gets saved. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The simplicity of the gospel. Yeah, and there's a reason that Jesus said, bring the children to me. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you come like a little child. There's a reason that the, you know, a child's heart has not been hardened by the world and the cynicism of the world around us. It is soft. It is fertile soil. You put that word of God like the, the sower scattering seed, you know, that parable. It, it hits that soil and there's no thorns or thistles yet. Right? You give it to them because it, it is ready to grow. It is full of nutrients. It's when we grow up. We start getting the thorns and thistles and the cares of this world, and we start, and the, the, you know, that's that's when it gets harder. You know, we want to evangelize kids because that's when the heart is so fertile, and then we disciple them along. Um, we get too smart for our own good when we get older. We we know better and all this kind of stuff. No good. never returns void. And flowers fade, grass withers, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Um, We've got to hang on to it. I remember there was a time in my life where I was really running from the Lord, um, but I I think I've told you this before, but I was still doing devotions because my parents checked in on me, so I wanted to be able to say that I was still doing my devotions. (laughs) Uh, But I still, I look back now at that time and think that the Lord used that as an anchor to stop me going from off all the way off the deep end. First John 2.6, I remember one specific devotion I had one morning. Um, it says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. First John 2.6. I remember even in my hardness of heart, my hardened state, that verse punched me in the stomach. You claim to be a follower of me. You claim to follow me. Uh, you better walk like Jesus did then. No hypocrisy, right? And even the hard heart, the word of God can get in there and do its work. Um, we can never let our, our foot off the pedal of the word of God in the church. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here on this one, but I get a little excited. I'm sorry. Okay. A um, couple more minutes here. Any, any final questions about uh, this little section? I'm not going to go on to the miracles. The, the uh, Sons of Sceva, fascinating account. We'll pick that up next week of the um, exorcism or failed exorcism, I should say. <laughs> exorcism gone wrong. Any, any final comments or questions about what we've been through so far in Acts?
Oh, go ahead, Bobby. Yeah, like you're talking about, we never want to create a false dichotomy between serving people and giving them the word. That's, not a, that's, a, that's a false dichotomy. We don't need to pick between those two. In fact, we shouldn't. There's sometimes we need to meet needs in order to give them the word. But there are ministries that fall short of the ultimate end goal, which is salvation through the word of God, right? That will serve needs and will just back off. Serve needs, back off. And, and that, those are great things. Great humanitarian efforts, altruistic, wonderful. But that's not Christian ministry, right? Uh, uh, we want to meet their needs, definitely. Physical needs, for sure. But we ultimately want to meet their, their spiritual need. Most, even if it means meeting them physically and then praying, Lord, send someone to, to give them the gospel, the word of God. Um, so yeah, we never want to pit those two things against each other, right? And for those who feel that, oh, I'm just, I'm not a preacher, I can't speak the word. Again, I would just encourage you. I, Paul, and I know it's, it's, you're thinking, yeah, but that's Paul. But Paul was saying, I didn't come with slick lists of speech. I didn't come with anything... Um, impressive in any way. Uh, I just came with the word of God. And as Jim said, being my testimony, they can't argue with that. I just give them my testimony, what the Lord has done in my life. Hopefully everyone can share their testimony, right? Even bumble through it in nervousness. Um, that's powerful. The Lord can use, he doesn't need slickness. He doesn't need uh, a showman. He doesn't need a charismatic individual. He just needs a willing person, a willing person to, to give the gospel. Yeah, again, before I pray, I want to distinguish two. When we talk about serving people, they're serving the body of Christ, which is unique. We are given gifts to serve the body of Christ, to meet needs in the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. And then there's meeting needs outside the body of Christ, so as to give them the gospel. Both meeting needs, but they are different. Right? There's mercy, ministry. We're giving gifts for the sake of building up the body of Christ. And that's a wonderful work of the Spirit in the body to meet needs and stuff like that. Outside the church, it's a, it's a, those... I don't want to conflate those two realities. Those are two equal missions that the church has been given to equip the saints and to evangelize the lost. Um, and we want to keep those two distinct. Um, both very important and both into each other, right? They, they both feed off each other. They overlap, but they are distinct. And when churches confuse those two, then you get some odd results. Yeah. I think what Stephen does in the church is like, that's what discipleship is. Yeah. All right, thanks for the attentiveness. Let's go worship together.